Welcome to Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national stories focusing on news, politics, and current events. Now, the latest edition of Update One. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Update One. This is your host, Shannon Fisher, and this podcast is part of our social media series. Uh, the topic today is the use of images in social media. We're evolving into an extremely visual culture, and we've, we've gathered a group of professors today from American University's School of Communication. My first guest is Amy Eisman, the Director of Media Entrepreneurship at American. She served as the Managing Editor of AOL in 2000. In 2015, she was named among the 100 tech titans in digital Washington by Washingtonian Magazine. My second guest is Professor Scott Tallon, and his expertise is in public and strategic communication. He's a frequent speaker about best practices in social media. Tallon wrote at Good Morning America, before getting into news, he was an elected city council member and mayor of Lafayette, California. My third guest is Lynn Perry, and she is a journalist in residence, and she's also the managing editor of American University's nonprofit newsroom and former deputy managing editor for graphics and photography at USA Today. So we have a lot of combined experience. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. All right. Well, I will start with a a question for Amy. So we have graphics, we have infographics, and we have photographs. Until recently, photographs have kind of notoriously been the best way to tell a story. But how can journalists use other types of graphics to help tell their story? Well, you raised some good points about how images increase viewership or usership of the news that that people are looking at. While engagement is hard to quantify, engagement is the key of what we're looking for. And according to Twitter last year, they said that photos on a tweet increased retweets about 35%. Videos increased retweets about 28%. Quotes increased retweets about 19%. So you get the idea that every time there's something to add to the text of content, you probably get higher engagement. And so what kind of information should be included? What type of information maximizes that post's effectiveness? What goes hand in hand with the content is that the links work. If the technology doesn't work, it doesn't matter what you're saying. So if you're going to link to a photo or a video, it has to go through and it has to go to someplace that can handle all of the traffic. So when you talk about what's good inside a a tweet or social media or on Facebook, I can give you a good example. Katie Couric, last year she had a tweet that said, come watch my exclusive interview with the CEO of Airbnb at Yahoo News right now. And it was just text and it had lots of links. And I looked at it and I showed this to my students and I said, that's not really a great way to engage me with the company. It just says, come hear something at some point, doesn't tell me what it is, doesn't have any photos. Then I looked a little further in the stream, and there was a lovely picture of Katie Kirk interviewing the head of Airbnb with information from the interview. How does Airbnb work? How do they make so much money? And that made me want to click on it and read more of the content. So the answer is a two-pronged answer to your question. One, everything has to work. Two, 
you need to have additional information and do not be over-promotional. Excellent. And so that's information-wise. Let's switch over to Lynn. She is the artist on the show today. What are the key design elements for a successful and eye-catching graphic? Everything depends on what you're thinking about journalistically. What is it that you're trying to show? You don't have to be an artist. You don't have to be uh, know exactly whether something you have is a bar chart or a table or a list, but try to think what it is that you're trying to show. I think it's really important to write the graphic before you even picture anything. So write what you want to say. What is the headline, if you had to put it succinctly? What kind of introduction? Then from there, go to what the visuals would be that would enhance that story. Once you're at that point, then there are so many choices these days. You can work with artists in your newsroom to create icons or images. You might be plotting something as simple as or seemingly simple as a bar chart. Um, but then you have to think about your use of color, whether to have much color, whether to make it interactive or static, whether to add stock imagery or an original photography examples. I'm a big believer in coming up with two or three ways to do something and then figure out what's the simplest, cleanest, clearest. Are there particular stories or topics that warrant a particular type of graphic over another? I think people warm up numbers. So if you have a numbers-heavy story, you might, in fact, be developing informational graphics and visual material that emphasize those numbers so they don't weigh down the story, which can then be more analytical. And I think if you add, whether it's a mugshot of someone, you know, just a nice headshot or a more compelling, moving photograph, it really helps invite the people in and get them to understand the numbers and maybe the analysis behind the story. And does that change across target demographics? I don't think so. You know, there's a lot of discussion about how millennials are more visual, but studies going back 20 and 25 years indicate that all ages love visuals. So I don't know that that really is is different for a 20-something or a 50-year-old someone. Now, I'll grant you that perhaps Younger generations are quicker to lose attention or maybe you want to enter a story that looks visually more complex and has lots of entry points than an older person. But I wouldn't discourage producers of information. I wouldn't discourage them from trying things no matter what demographic they're trying to reach. Now, as far as strategy goes, let's let's turn now over to Professor Scott Talon. What is the effectiveness of graphics across the various social media platforms? We've got Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, Periscope, Snapchat. What types of strategies differ between the various platforms? Several of those platforms are inherently visual. Periscope and Instagram right off the bat would not exist without the visuality of it, of either the video or the photo Mm -hmm. or a mixture of both, which I think underscores how imperative it is to think visually. Human beings initially going back to hieroglyphs and cave paintings were visual. And what we're seeing now is what Professor Mitchell Stevens at NYU wrote about, rise of the image, fall of the word. Mm -hmm. Words are still going to be there. It's just that you can actually convey more in a quicker fashion, in a more effective fashion, visually, not all the times, but often than you can with words. And then if you marry and merge the image and the text, to me, you have something really powerful. So I also think each platform, you have to look at it itself in its own sort of world. Starbucks is really good on this. 
their photos on Instagram have a different tone and feel than they put on Twitter or Facebook. Mm-hmm. They view Instagram in and of itself as its own world, and that makes a lot of sense if you think of the audience and users and why they're there and maybe not elsewhere. That absolutely makes sense because you're going to have a different people looking at different that, that, platforms for different reasons. And, and you want to take that into account, into what you're producing all about the visuals. Oxford Dictionary's word of the year is an emoji, faced with tears of joy emoji, technically not a word. Very true. Most of the time, journalists are we're posting single stories. Is there any reason to plan a social media campaign with graphics that have the same look? I almost feel sorry and have a lot of empathy for journalists of today because it's no longer enough to do a good story. You have to then share it, tweet it, repost it, repackage it, and brand yourself on top of doing a good story. And part of that is, is then thinking of a plan and timing of when you when you roll this out. You created a course called Personal Branding and Online Identity. So how does that concept apply to journalism? How does a journalist create a brand on social media? They have to think that they're also in more of a conversation and someone out there might have a piece of information you want or a story idea. And when you have this two-way street, you have a better chance of getting it. I'm still blown away that the Washington Post often doesn't let you easily find the email of a reporter. How do we easily find more? And they're doing this better on the web, but I think more is better to some degree so people can have some sort of relationship and understand who's delivering the news to them. So what – and this this goes out to all of you – what is the role of interaction over social media? How much should journalists be communicating with with their fans, with their readers? On one hand, we benefit from what's called crowdsourcing, which is bringing in the reader for more engagement and more discussion. At the same time, um, you can see from what happens with comments that are appended to articles online, the conversation gets fairly uncivil fairly quickly. And so some news organizations right now are experimenting with removing comments altogether. You mentioned the vitriol that can that can often follow when someone disagrees with the topic that is being covered. So how does the politically polarized society fit into this? One image that stands out in my mind is uh, when the White House was lit up in rainbow colors right after the Supreme Court decision legalizing gay marriage. What's the best way to approach those kinds of images and stories? Journalists are covering the news. The journalists didn't light up the White House. The White House made a decision to to do the lights. And so the journalists took the pictures and the pictures then spread. Those are things that oftentimes journalists who are messengers get called on as playing roles of advocates. Right now, news organizations are scrambling to come up with social media guidelines. There was a reporter, basically in the immigration debate, when there was laws passed in Congress proposed about, you know, no more immigrants from Syria and the Mideast, that they tweeted, the Statue of Liberty is crying today, which is clearly a personal opinion. And so on one hand, from my view, they should be applauded for reaching out, but they went too far. And it's tough to find where's the line that's too far. And a lot of a, a lot of photographs go viral on their own, kind of like the season's greetings photo from Ferguson. The SWAT team was standing underneath of a season's greetings banner, and there were buildings on fire behind them. And and that was taken by Jim Young at Reuters. If we're trying to evoke emotion, what is the strategy behind posting or not posting those kinds of potentially inflammatory photographs? 
possibly a missing piece here is an editor. You know, we're so quick to post on social media and we're so quick to think we know what's best, but sometimes the power of that delayed discussion in the newsroom around, is this the right message? What will people think? Is it enough to just post one? Should we post three? Should we post an explanation to explain to the reader what it is they're looking at? All of that particular context needs to be thought about a little bit more. I don't know that it would have changed the example of the reporter posting something about the Statue of Liberty crying. Mm -hmm. I I don't really know that there are still not going to be things that just happen because they need to happen quickly. But I, I do think sometimes we're so quick to post photography, especially without some context, that it, it can be interpreted so incorrectly or so in a way that we didn't intend that we just have to really step back and think for a minute. How do these images on social media being shared all of the time, going viral, how does that delivery compare to traditional delivery of photographs in newspapers and magazines like when the Berlin Wall fell? Uh, That was everywhere, but we didn't have the Internet and we didn't have immediate sharing. So how is that sharing? How does it change how people view journalism? That's hard to answer because I don't know if they see some of this as journalistic or just any, because anyone right, it's just posts, content. and everyone kind of thinks of themselves as a photographer these days because anyone has the ability to take a high quality photo. So I'm not sure people at large really think necessarily always about whether this is a journalistic photograph or whether this has any journalistic content around it or whether it's just a photo. Sure. I hadn't thought about that, that it could have a diminished effect because we are inundated with images all the time. Shannon, I don't think this is really a negative I think it's so powerful that people have immediate access to what what journalists see or what their friends and colleagues see. It's extremely powerful because information is so powerful. The trick is figuring out, I think, especially when it's coming from a journalism source, you know, can we convey the complexity of what might be behind the photo or the seemingly simple graphic that could, in fact, be a little bit deceptive if you don't understand what the context is around it. Periscope, for example, which where everybody can hold up their phone and become their own broadcaster. You know, virtual reality has been around for a while, but it's pushing itself onto the scene. Lynn and I were just talking about the ethics of virtual reality and what some of the news organizations are doing. Uh, but this was this was makes it so tough. There's more and more of this content and more and more sites to look at, see, share, manage. We only have 24 hours a day and we still need to sleep. But what's what's coming out of that is there's so much noise. You're seeing now an awakening of sites of long-form content or just beautiful photographs. You're seeing a big trend right now in e-newsletters where they're summarizing the day's events and giving you just the highlights. Because there is so much of this crush of activity out there, people are looking for fewer sources that can give them more information in briefer ways. That's the perfect place to end it. Thank you all so much, Professor Amy Eisman, Professor Scott Talon, and Professor Lynn Perry from American. Thank you for coming and talking to us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This is Shannon Fisher for Update One. See you next time. You have been listening to Update One, a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Committee. You can comment on this show or any episode of Update One by going to facebook.com slash pressclubdc or on Twitter at Press Club DC. Thanks for listening to Update One.